Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, today is the second annual Day of Truth and Reconciliation, and Dr. Ken Coates, Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with the Macdonald Laurier Institute, will share ways that Canadians can honor the occasion. It's also our final town hall with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger as he bows out of politics after next month's election. And in a, is a toxic workplace really affecting productivity? Study says, yeah. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. This is National Truth and Reconciliation Day here in Canada, and uh, the second, of course. Uh, and uh, we want to talk about the progress that's been made, or lack of progress, as some people might actually characterize it, uh, and a number of other issues. And uh, to that end, uh, we're so pleased to welcome to the program, uh, welcome back to the program, actually, Dr. Ken Coates. Uh, Dr. Coates is a Canada Research Chair with the Johnson Shoyama Graduate School of Public Policy at the University of Saskatchewan. He's also a Senior Fellow of Aboriginal and Northern Canadian Issues with, uh, with the McDonald Laurier Institute. Uh, Doctor, a pleasure to have you back on the program today. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's great to be with you, sir. Let me ask you, uh, first of all, about your thoughts about what's happening today. Uh, the federal government, of course, declared this to be a national day. Uh, only three provinces are acknowledging that. Manitoba, Nova Scotia, and Prince Edward Island are rac- recognizing this as a holiday. You know, closed schools, government offices, etc. cetera. Uh, Ontario is not most, well, the other provinces aren't. They say they are honoring it, and I guess that just means there are going to be ceremonies. Uh, is that enough, or should there should be more of a commitment from the provinces, do you think? So my, my personal view, and it's very much a personal view, is that we should be recognizing a truth and reconciliation every way we possibly can. I'm not convinced that the public holidays actually deal with that. Um, in in fact, what happens is the vast majority of Canadians will not be doing anything to honor truth and reconciliation or to advance reconciliation with Aboriginal people. They're having a holiday. Uh, in fact, those people who are, in fact, having holidays, it's mostly government government officials and government-regulated uh, offices. Um, so I'm, I'm actually think this is sort of a bit of a, of a mixed message. Um, you know, we're supposed to be sitting here reflecting on the role of, of uh, you know, the history and the treatment of an Aboriginal people. Um, and may, for many people, it's a day off. I'm not sure those things are compatible. Um, there, there's lo- wonderful opportunities to keep the kids in school, for example, and to actually have, you know, meetings in the, in the gymnasium and, and full sessions and lots of activities. And we do this historically on Remembrance Day. We found lots of ways of, of recognizing Remembrance Day, um, you know, in our schools and in our public a- activities. Um, I'm just not convinced that a holiday is the way to do it. We certainly need way more in the way of reconciliation. We need to do a lot more to sort of reach out to Indigenous co- communities and, 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 and learn from them in, in, in many ways that we possibly can. I'm not convinced the holiday is the right way to do it, particularly since this holiday was sort of sprung on the country. Um, the provinces didn't have a role in deciding if we were going to have it in the first place. Um, and so you can't you know, chide them for sort of not going along with something that they didn't approve of in the first instance. I, I think Remembrance Day is a very apt description uh, because there was a time when Remembrance Day was a day off for everybody too. Uh, and there was some concern about just what you were describing, Doctor, that you know people just took it as a day off. And uh, attendance actually you know, was not that good at the Cenotaph ceremonies or, or in right. towns and villages. So the government decided, okay, it's not going to be a holiday anymore. And amazingly, the attendance at those seven and a half increased significantly. I mean, I, I hosted for many, many years uh, the one in downtown Hamilton at the Cenotaph there. Uh, and, you know, schools would take that opportunity to bring their classes down there for that. And it was uh, it was an educational process, I think, that, uh, that uh, evolved from that. And I'd like to see the same sort of thing happen with this day. 
I, I agree. I agree, and I, and I think I wonder why we think that a holiday is is this great mark of remembrance, um, or or recognition, or or engagement. I mean, the the purpose of today was to find a time when we would actually collectively, um, you know, sort of reflect on what's actually going on. Now, now to be fair, there are many events happening across the country. There's there's fairly substantial participation, um, you know. But it's kind of interesting if you look at the city of Regina, for example. They had twelve thousand school children in the Mosaic Stadium yesterday. Uh, they brought the kids out during yesterday to have an absolutely wonderful event with lots of speakers, great speakers, um, great ceremonies, great great activity. Um, and now they're going to have a holiday following on that. The the main effect, uh, the main event was yesterday. It was actually at that that mass meeting. And and I think we can be much smarter about these things. I I. There's no question we need a lot more respect and, and admiration and, and participation with Indigenous folks, but we can be a lot smarter about it than we're doing right now. Uh, let's look back uh, over the last uh, 365 days, I guess, since the first Truth and Reconciliation Day. Uh, it's been a busy year. A lot has happened here. Uh, more sadly, more burial sites were discovered, of course. And uh, there's, an, of course, a delegation went over to Rome, met with the Pope, and the Pope reciprocated and came back here. And, and issued an apology. Uh, some people say, well, that's done now. You can check that list off, uh, off, off of the list of things that need to be done. Can we really? Not at all. Um, it's really interesting. You know, remember that the first the first event was actually spoiled by the fact that the prime minister um, decided to go surfing in Tofino. And we spent a week and a half sort of mulling over that and criticizing him. And that was a really, really harsh start to what was, was supposed to be a very important sort of national, national process. But let's recognize the things that really need to be done are not superficial. Um, and I hesitate to call the Pope within the Catholic Church, but, you know, nobody, no, no poor Aboriginal children got fed because of that event. Um, no, no great reconciliation in terms of economic opportunity happened because of that apology. That's one tiny step on a, on a thousand mile journey. Um, so I, I know I'm, I think what we need to look at is the fact that reconciliation needs to be far, far more substantial. And in fact, we are seeing signs of this. We're seeing major indigenous investments in real estate and energy infrastructure and, and, and wind farms and things of that sort. We're seeing some really significant efforts being made. There's a, a activity underway right now by one of the major corporations in Canada that's looking away to, to fund uh, indigenous youth uh, getting involved with, and actively involved in sports. That's the kind of stuff we really need to see ongoing you know, regular, substantial, system-changing kind of activities. That's what we actually need to see. And I'm afraid that what happens with things like like reconciliation days and, and speeches and apologies and things of that sort, those, those are symbols that really try to make the non-Aboriginal people feel better about themselves. Um, people get dressed up in orange orange, and they go on a walk. I love it when they do that. I'm doing that myself today. Um, I don't criticize it for that, but that's, that's really about non-Aboriginal people. The, the purpose of reconciliation is to realize that history did some really bad deals on Indigenous folks in this country, and that we need to sort of go back to the basics and restructure Canada from the ground up almost to actually really make substantial and sustainable change. We can do it. We're doing it in parts of the country, mostly starting in the north, but we're, we're getting some interesting developments taking place, but they're very quite different than the sort of the high profile ceremonial things. I, I think ceremony is fine. It's part of the process. It just isn't the process in itself. The entirety is far greater than that. 
Well, as you and I have talked about in the past, and I think you made the point on numerous occasions, uh, the best way to do that is to tell stories. I mean, to teach. Uh, you know, and for instance, as we mentioned, it's not just Truth and Reconciliation Day. This is also Orange Shirt Day, as you just alluded to. And uh, that color was not picked on an arbitrary fashion. Uh, there's a story behind that, too. The story, of course, of Phyllis mm-hmm. Webstead uh, and, and the degradation that she went through. I mean, they took her shirt away her first day in that school. Uh, and she, as she said, also took away my, my dignity and my humanity. Uh, and and that was emblematic of what was going on. The the, the shirt is actually a metaphor in the color uh, for that orange shirt that she just loved. That was the first day she ever wore it, the first day of school. It's also the last time she ever saw it, too. Uh, and, and those are the stories, I think, that, that were, are going to resonate with people. And absolutely right, because those stories sort of you know, really get into our heart and soul, and they make us realize how deep and how penetrating a lot of the abuses to, you know, directed at Aboriginal people were. These were serious, systematic uh, activities. Some of them were small individual teachers and principals or schools or things of that sort. Some of them were much more systemic. Um, if you look back even 20 years, um, Indigenous people who came into the major cities in this country and tried to find an apartment to rent uh, ran into all sorts of discrimination. In fact, you can see this happening to this to this very day. So we need to sort of put these things in two in two categories. The stories are the kind of stuff that stick with us. Uh, they tell us what actually happens, and they make us remember how deep and and sad these situations actually were uh, for so many thousands of Indigenous people across the country. So today. Listen for the stories. Um, go find a place where people can, are telling the stories. Um, sort of stand with them. Show your sympathy and show your, your your support. And then use that as a springboard to to making major change and doing stuff differently. That's where the real substantial reconciliation will occur. Let's uh, look at the report card here. I mean, a lot of this stems uh, from the uh, Truth and Reconciliation Report. They had ninety four calls to action in the uh, in that report. Uh, I saw a rather troubling story yesterday, uh, Doctor, that suggested that only 13 of those 94 have actually been completed. Now, to to be fair, there are some that are works in progress at this stage. Some haven't even begun uh, to address any of those. And and it's 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 troubling, I guess, after all these years that, that, that I, I understand that progress is going to be slow in some of these situations. Uh, but you have to question the commitment, I guess, to get through this list and to try to make a, a, a better situation. So we've had lots of commissions over the years, and very, very few of them have ever resulted in in sort of a stepwise uh, response to each and every recommendation. Uh, the 94 recommendation, that's a lot. That's an awful lot of things. And in fact, I was worried at the time that it was sort of, you know, we'd be obsessed about this and we'd, we'd, we'd basically setting ourselves up for failure because there were so many of them. They were so diverse. Some of them are immediate, you know, more money to the CBC, which was really not all that well connected in my mind to, to truth and reconciliation. Um, but, but some of them are much more longstanding. How do you change the mindset of Canadian business so that they, in fact, do more to sort of recruit and hire and train and retain Aboriginal workers, right? So, some of these are are not ones you can sort of tick a box and say, oh, that one is done. Um, some of them actually can be done relatively relatively straightforward fashion. But for example, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission talked about the need to recognize and adopt UNDRIP. Um, so the government of Canada announced they were going to do that. Then six months later, they said, gee, I'm not sure if we can do that. Then they actually 
passed twice tried to pass legislation they finally succeeded and all they've done is make a promise to make promises why because this is unbelievably difficult and if you're going to pass legislation you got to back it up with the funding to do it properly and and the truth and reconciliation commission didn't budget out what it would cost to do the kinds of things they're talking about and as governments try to deal with them they realize this is really complicated and and it, and it is complicated and and so you know I, i'm not a fan of sort of going and looking every year how are, are we getting closer are we getting closer um we'll we'll know when we're there we'll know when we no longer have to have conversations about missing and murdered aboriginal women and aboriginal men now we know we no longer have to sort of look at the systematic problems of of water access and internet access and poor housing and things of that sort there's a, a hundred markers we can use to show us whether we've actually achieved something sort of starting processes off of sort of a a, a list created by a commission is, is only part of the process and i think we really have to sort of understand how sweeping how deep and how how widespread the challenges are and that that's the challenge of truth and reconciliation day is not to go and say you can go down and go in a march or you can participate in a round dance you can get involved in a powwow and therefore things are better that is only again one of the very first steps is like the pope's apology the first step on a thousand mile journey right we've got to do those things we absolutely have to do it i'm really impressed with how much public attention there is to truth and reconciliation and orange shirt day i'm really impressed with how many different organizations and groups including yourself are, are spending a lot of serious time looking at these kinds of things but you know we really have to look much more fundamentally at the structure of canada and the way in which we govern the way we manage our our resources the way we share our prosperity to and and way we we compensate folks for the the ills of history you know indigenous people are poor today because of decisions that were consciously made in the 19th century you know and so it's incumbent upon all of us in 2022 to sort of reach forward and sort of address those kind of challenge very systematically this is not going to be easy um, it's not a question of ticking off the, the the truth and reconciliation recommendations one by one and thinking okay we've achieved something now we will know when we get to reconciliation uh, because the the whole tenor of the conversation with Aboriginal people will go from one of, of crisis and, and, and pro protest and, and controversy to one of partnership and real friendship. And we can see good signs of us going in that direction. That's what makes me excited about the, the path we're on. Well, and as you and I talked about, I guess it was a month or so ago, uh, we need to talk about some of the success stories, too. The challenges are real, and, and we need to concentrate on those. We can't just, you know, pretend they don't exist. But at the same time, uh, you talked to us about the, uh, the tribe that you saw in Saskatchewan just a, a couple of months ago, and some of the great and, and very innovative things that they're doing, I mean, uh, which could serve as a, a template, not just for Aboriginals, but I think for other communities as well. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's so many fascinating things being done by First Nations, Métis, and Inuit communities. There's experiments in governance. There's developments in resource management and environmental protection. There's some really interesting investments that will basically endow communities for, for centuries in terms of kind of a Norwegian kind of an approach to sovereignty and, and, and sovereign wealth funds. We're, we're seeing some really interesting things, and we're seeing some really good signs of collaboration. You know, it's really interesting to use one example, the maritime fishery. 
history. And every once in a while, there's been some really, really unfortunate and very difficult con conflicts that have happened there, going back to 1999, 2000, but also as, as recently as 2021. What we don't recognize is that may be the most important example of economic reconciliation in recent Canadian history, where there are more than a thousand Micmac and Maliseet fishers actively involved in the industry, where the communities are making millions of dollars off of their licenses and quotas that they've received through the Marshall decision. Um, and the, the non-Aboriginal community has accommodated that really quite successfully. You know, so, so we can do things way better. And we, in fact, in some places are doing things way better. Um, what's, what's not happening is not many of them are happening in the cities. And because they don't happen in the big cities, we tend not to see them on the national scale the way we should. Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, we'll have to leave it there. Our time is tight today, but it's always a pleasure having you on the program to get your insight. Thank you so much for this today. You're more than welcome. Bye now. You betcha. Dr. Ken Coates uh, from the University of Saskatchewan. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We do this uh, every month, of course. It's the Mayor's Town Hall with Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. Uh, we're heading towards a, a municipal election, of course, in just a few weeks. And uh, it's not business as usual at City Hall, but there is still business going on. Uh, Mr. Mayor, welcome back to the program. Good to have you with us again today. Thanks, Bill. Good to have you uh, to be here as well. And uh, congratulations to the uh, CFTO London station. Uh, you know, it's nice. Nice that we can celebrate, uh, you know, media and radio stations that have gone on for 100 years. Uh, that's uh, hopefully a trend that will continue. Well, and I know that uh, during your years as mayor, of course, you've uh, had occasion to work with uh, with Mayor Holder down there on a number of different things, a uh, large urban mayor's caucus, the uh, association of municipalities, et cetera, too. Mm -hmm. uh, so... Uh, Let's let's talk a little bit about this. This is I don't want this to get into a melancholy or greatest hits uh, of uh, Mayor Eisenberger because uh, it's been a long career uh, for you on City Council, and of course you're not running for re-election. So uh, there's a lot to talk about about what has happened, and and I'm sure you're going to have lots of time uh, to look back on this uh, as you and Diane sit on the back porch there and just watch the sun go down and relax it uh, for the first time since about 25 years, I guess. Uh, but there are some things I want to talk about uh, that uh, Council has been working on over the last little while. Uh, including uh, a couple of concerns about about transit safety, and uh, I know that uh, what you've been developing at the uh, administrative level in the last little while is an HSR safety app. Maybe you could talk about that. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, it certainly occurred to us that uh, there are a number of communities that have, uh, have instituted this kind of safety app. And when you're, you know, when you're on a bus and and there's a there's a conflict happening. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to, to advise or warn somebody that could respond to that, uh, you know, in a, in a vocal kind of way, because obviously then you alarm everybody. Uh, so there, there is a safety app that, uh, that uh, can be introduced that you can quietly get on your phone. And I think most people travel with a phone. And rather than having to confront the situation uh, or, or, you know, pull in the bus driver, uh, you can quietly let, uh, let some first responders know and the... Uh, and the call center at uh, at HSR, and then they can send the appropriate people to deal with whatever conflict they're dealing with. Um, so, so uh, I, I think it's a very important uh, opportunity to create additional safety on the on the buses or in the in the transit terminals or on the bus shelters. Uh, you know, things happen, and uh, sometimes it's very difficult for people to uh, to be able to deal with. And if they can uh, find a quiet way of sounding the alarm without uh, creating more conflict that uh, is, is the right thing to do so i'm looking forward for the to the hsr applying that app and they the council gave them direction to go and make that happen so that we can create a, a, a safer environment on our on our transit system and it, it was in response to a recent 
conflict on the HSR where, you know, an individual was, was confronting people and assaulting people. And, you know, there's little that anyone can do when you're kind of trapped on a bus. So uh, there's a, this is an opportunity for uh, an individual to be able to sound the alarm. Uh, great idea. Any idea of, of time frame from HSR as to when this is, is going to be up and running? Uh, I, I, I would hope months. Uh, the, you know, these apps already exist. Uh, it's, it's just a, a needed add-on to the, the, the normal HSR app that most people are using to, uh, to navigate our transit system. So I don't think it's overly complicated. I, I would hope and expect that uh, early in the new term of this council, the new council that uh, HSR will be there to uh, get authorization and, uh, and uh, put in place this, uh, this, this app, yeah. Uh, lots of other things I want to talk about, but uh, it's always, uh, I think, important that we uh, spotlight uh, some of the great citizens of this community. And uh, I know that uh, Council did that uh, just the other day. Well, actually, through the farmer's market, uh, Tilly Johnson, who is uh, just an incredible lady, uh, not just a, a stall holder at the market, but uh, somebody that fought for education for children and a number of other things. And she's being honored at the market now. She is. And, um, you know, I'm sure you and I would have, uh, have been the target of... Uh, uh, Tilly's, uh, Tilly's wrath or, or conversation, uh, you know, from time to time, because she was a very outspoken, uh, Caribbean, black Caribbean individual that, uh, you know, 37, 40 years ago came to the city and, uh, decided uh, she wanted to be part of the farmer's market, but, but also wanted to engage in providing, uh, you know, fairness and equity for, for, for black, black uh, residents in our community, for uh, children in our community. And so was very outspoken and uh, decided to uh, ensure that her rights and uh, the rights of anyone uh, in, in our community, whether we're black, white or otherwise, uh, were, were adhered to and, uh, and taken into consideration. So she was a fighter for equity and, uh, and uh, diversity. Uh, she ended up uh, getting an honorary uh, you know, doctorate degree at McMaster University for her hard fought work in terms of that equity and diversity and uh, became a distinguished citizen of the year. She was a fixture at, at, uh, at the farmer's market. And uh, every time I went to the farmer's market uh, prior to her passing, uh, she would uh, certainly you know, call me over and share some thoughts and ideas about what she thought the city was doing well or not doing well. I'm sure you had the same experience. And everyone, oh, yeah. everyone else that was elected actually got uh, got her either her you know her tongue or or her her uh, encouragement in terms of uh, the things that were happening in her city that she appreciated or didn't appreciate well and what i always enjoyed about that first of all she never pulled any punches and uh, you know when i was on council and as i say we oftentimes the meetings we'd have would be down at the, the farmers market itself uh but she was she had an opinion on everything because she was always well informed uh but she to use an old phrase, put her money where her mouth is. She just didn't advocate for a better education. She started a scholarship fund uh, right. herself, and uh, and that was just an incredible move on her part uh, to make sure. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say we need this, but to actually put some money down and say, I'm going to make sure that this happens was just an incredible feat. So it's no wonder that she's she's a member of the Hamilton Gallery of Distinction, of course, and uh, and also, as you mentioned, a former citizen of the year. So it's a, it's a, an incredible honor, I guess, to have that uh, that plaque for her down at the farmers market to honor her great service, not just to the farmers market, but to the community, I suppose. Yeah. Well, well to your point, uh, you know, you know, you know, folks that are working at the farmers market aren't uh, aren't exactly making a fortune; they're making a living, and uh, mm -hmm. and to to take you know resources, you know, meager resources that she was living on, and create scholarships to help others. Other kids, other other black uh, children, for you know, giving them opportunity. There are a number of people that are 
at our uh, event uh, at the market that uh, that spoke to uh, how she helped them establish a, a business or a better path uh, in our community and uh, she just mentored a lot of other great people that, uh, that that went on to do some good things so uh, you know it doesn't take buckets of money necessarily but certainly often uh, encouragement and uh, some direction on a, on a proper path and uh, certainly she did all of that in, uh, in every way possible uh, let me t- tie something else in here, too, because I know this is something that has been near and dear to you uh, in your time in the mayor's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and that, of course, is the, uh, the the awards for Hamiltonians. You're looking for nominations right now uh, for uh, the Order of Hamilton. And uh, it's, it's something that I know that you've really embraced uh, as a way to honor some people that uh, make some significant contributions to the community. Not always in the spotlight, but significant contributions nonetheless. Yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure and honor to be able to have created a, uh, an order of Hamilton that, that recognizes those individuals that uh, are unsung or not necessarily business or wealthy, but just doing work in our community that uh, makes their community or our community as a whole better. And uh, we've had a number of, uh, we do 10 of them every year. So for the last three years, we've had uh, some 30 recipients. All of them, uh, you know, worthy and honorable, uh, whether they were, you know, uh, like, like Tilly, just mentoring and helping people, uh, you know, in their, their, their path of life or doing cleanups in their community, uh, you know, unsung, nobody, nobody really paid attention, but somebody noticed that every day that's that, that person's out there keeping their neighborhood clean uh, from, from the garbage that's thrown around. It's that kind of thing that we want to want to be able to celebrate uh, the, the contributions that these individuals make. And uh, it's always a great, great treat to uh, to have those individuals come in and receive the uh, the medallion and the pin. Uh, they're so proud, and uh, and we're so proud of them. And I think this is a testament to their uh, to their good work in our community. So nominations are open right now. They will be open until uh, December the first, and then uh, the next uh, mayor and city manager will get together and make some selections out of the nominees and. Uh, hopefully have an event close to uh, the New Year's levy or on the New Year's levy, which is traditional when we've done this, to uh, to celebrate these good people that are doing good things in our community. Uh, just want to tie this in because I know the uh, Lions Lair, of course, had their competition last night. And uh, over the last, well, 12 years, of course, CHML has been a huge sponsor for that. <clears throat> and uh, and we've had a number of the finalists on the program, of course, over the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's I'm glad it's back, and it's back to full speed again, of course. It was up at Carmen's last night. But the competition itself, Mr. Mary, is such a key part here of of developing entrepreneurship and, and, uh, you know, these startups that they were doing so well, and then, boom, the pandemic hit. And we were always worried that Mm -hmm. maybe maybe that's going to slow things down. But uh, based on the kind of uh, qualifications we saw and the people that were nominated for the Lions Awards last night, uh, it's booming now again. And that's going to be a key part of our economy going forward, isn't it? It's huge. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I, ha- I had the pleasure of uh, hosting a breakfast for these uh, nominees, all, all you know, of, of different ages, by the way. So, uh, you know, George uh, that I met was a retired engineer that came up with an idea about uh, how to purify the air around you, uh, you know, if you're sitting at a table somewhere, and how, you know, the virus, you, you know, we know that the virus is spread, you know, into the air, and he, his philosophy was, and his idea was how we, how we can manage that. Uh, then there were a lot of young younger folks that uh, came up with ideas as well around 
around uh, you know uh, uh, health products or better health outcomes or better assistance and help in, in a resource center for uh, individuals that are uh, pregnant and having babies and you know where do they get information I mean a lot of great stuff but I happen to be sitting with uh, a Mitch Wilson and I hope he doesn't mind me sharing his story he, he, Mitch Wilson runs a company now called Mariner he was a nominee uh, for the uh, lion's lair about seven years ago uh, his product is a, a technology and appliances for laparoscopic surgery and uh, this year his company uh, uh, recorded a hundred million dollars worth of revenue, and that also means that not only not only is Mitch Wilson doing well in his company, but he's hiring a, you know a, a hundred people that uh, that are part of his company to uh, to make it successful. So it's just an amazing story, and it's the kind of thing that you want to see happen that comes out of the Lions Lair entrepreneurial uh, uh, competition. And, uh, you know, a lot of these products, I think, of Go Rich. Uh, you know, I remember uh, meeting that individual maybe five or six or seven years ago. Still a very strong, ongoing company that will come to your door and fix your car. And uh, they're, uh, I think they're in the process of franchising now and uh, doing very, very well, well. So it's all about, you know, future employment, creating, creating opportunities and making sure that there are jobs for people here in Hamilton and, and that the, the folks that come up with these ideas and products uh, hopefully we'll uh, build them and, and source them right here in Hamilton for uh, that added value employment of uh, production and manufacturing. Well, and we've seen that happen. And I know that uh, that you were part of the uh, collaboration, shall we say, that uh, that was struck uh, just before the pandemic, I guess, uh, between Hamilton and uh, KW and and, uh, and Burlington and, of course, all the way over to Toronto, uh, collaborating for economic development. Uh, this is a cluster right now here in southern Ontario, and, and the, the federal government and the provincial governments are certainly aware of that, too. And it's uh, it's kind of encouraging, I guess, as we look at what's going on economically these days to know that we've got that foundation here. Yeah, we have two uh, two great clusters, actually. We have uh, the, uh, the advanced manufacturing cluster that uh, the federal government invested in, some $950 million dollars headquartered out of uh, McMaster Innovation Park, but working in the Kitchener, Waterloo, Toronto, Hamilton area as a, as a regional government. And the second one is the, uh, the tech cluster. And I think most people don't realize that Hamilton is very, very central to the uh, Toronto, Hamilton, KW, Kitchener, Waterloo technology cluster that uh, also is looking at advanced technology. How do we, uh, how do we inspire it? Uh, how do we advance it? And as you uh, probably realize, uh, you know, a lot of that work actually resulted in Bell coming to Hamilton to make a roughly $500 million investment in laying down new fiber optic cable for, you know, high speed uh, connectivity, which, you know, today, uh, uh, internet, internet connectivity and high speed connectivity is as important as water, as important as, uh, you know, gas and, uh, and electricity. Uh, this is this is now a part of how what makes our world work, and uh, that investment you can see happening all throughout our city with uh, you know the fiber optic cable being laid in exist under existing streets, which uh, you know I'm sure has been a difficult process, but uh, is moving very successfully and closing in on I think completion. And even though we're a few weeks away from the municipal elections, uh, there are still th some things that need to be resolved and still some ongoing projects. Uh, and Mr. Mayor, key among those, of course, is the, uh, well, the upcoming uh, Commonwealth Games bid. 
uh, that's uh, in itself been a bit of a roller coaster ride uh, since uh, that group got together and uh, and approached city council about this. Now we got word uh, earlier in the summer, of course, the, from the uh, the chief executive of the Commonwealth Games Federation, uh, Katie Sadler, heard that uh, that they want to have this pretty much resolved by the end of 2023, uh, which is a shorter time frame than some people had anticipated. Uh, your thoughts about the bid itself and, and our chances going forward on this? Well, you know, I think uh, our chances are excellent. Uh, you, you, know, you know, I think you and I have been involved in a couple of bids uh, previously uh, during our term as, uh, on council, and uh, we weren't successful. In fact, we spoke to the uh, the, the winning bid in 2002, which was Manchester, England, and uh, the great value that they've uh, they gotten out of it. We were actually supposed to go and visit, but the uh, train strike in England prevented us from doing that. Um, you know, the value of this is always the legacy pieces that get left behind. Uh, so the original uh, Commonwealth Games, which was the Empire Loyalist Games, gave us uh, Jimmy Thompson Pool, the HAAA grounds, and uh, and Iverwind Stadium. That, uh, that, uh, that was with us for the better part of 80, uh, 80 or 90 years. And uh, the, the legacy opportunity, I think, for the, uh, the upcoming games, which is taking a regional approach, but will still celebrate the 100th anniversary of the creation of the games, which was right here in Hamilton in 1930, uh, I think makes us the, uh, the, the overall sentimental favorite. Uh, but we still have to put a bid together that uh, that satisfies the Commonwealth uh, organizers' uh, requirements in terms of various sports that uh, they're going to need to see as part of this. And that's why we're also potentially partnering with uh, Jamaica and Gibraltar on a couple of sports that are very popular in those areas that uh, we could potentially co-host with in partnership with uh, as well the uh, the regional uh, you know, partners that we've already identified here, Brampton, uh, Kitchener, Waterloo, and, uh, and, and Burlington. So uh, I think it's a great uh, opportunity for us to uh, not only host the two-week games, but to generate uh, a lot of either housing and or uh, future legacy activities. And for Hamilton, I think one of the bigger pieces that we need to consider is uh, an aquatic facility that McMaster University has long aspired to that I think is uh, very necessary here and uh, was part of the original Pan Am Games bid, as you re might recall, as was, yes, the, I do. Uh, as was the cycling center, uh, both of which went to other places. And we were left with uh, what I think turned out to be a great stadium in the wrong location, but the great stadium. And, um, and so the legacy piece is, uh, I think, the aquatic facility. And that's certainly something that uh, we're working very hard on to make sure it's impressed upon the federal and provincial governments that there's uh, you know, great enduring value here not only during the games, but from now all the way to 2030 and beyond that uh, will stand the test of time for our community as well as all the other communities that are participating. I, I think that's a point that a lot of people tend to overlook or just uh, maybe just omit from, from their criticisms or their, their, their feelings about this issue, uh, about the legacy elements to this too, saying, you know, we shouldn't be spending money on this when we think, need things like affordable housing. And, and of course we need affordable housing, but the, this is a means to an end. Yes, it's a celebration. Yes, it's an athletic event. Uh, but when all is said and done and the games are over, the housing stays. And uh, uh, that's important. And, and the commitment you've got from the group here uh, that uh, that this stuff is going to get built. I mean, because there's always going to be some skepticism about this, but we've seen it succeed in other communities. You mentioned Br Birmingham, England. I know uh, our friend Greg Maycheck, uh, who was so involved in the the past bids, uh, mm -hmm. has visited those cities, and he says, you know, the, 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 here we are, years and years after the games themselves, 
And and those projects, uh, including the housing, the, the affordable housing projects, have been a key part of those uh, cities' economic revival. Yeah, completely. And, uh, you know, so I mentioned Manchester. We were, uh, I was in Birmingham. We were supposed to travel to Manchester. I'm, I'm well aware of Manchester. I was, uh, you know, we were part of that 2002 bid. Uh, Manchester won it and they have, they have generated value and benefit out of that uh, for the past uh, 20 years. Uh, and and, and we'll tell you today that they're still seeing enduring benefits as a result of win, winning that, uh, that original bid way back in 2002. They redeveloped uh, an entire area of their city uh, in preparation for the games and that redevelopment is, uh, is really standing, standing up well for the future of their community. One, one thing I don't want people to forget is, you know, how, how important sports is in the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the raising of our children and the activity levels and, and the lessons that it teaches them and, and the quality of life that it, it can provide them. Uh, that, is, that is not to be forgotten throughout this process because, you, you know, just look around our community and see how active, uh, you know, everyone is in sports, but especially kids that are looking to establish themselves learn about sportsmanship and how to interrelate with one another and possibly then you know strive for a higher level of achievement in in the in the sporting world whether it's commonwealth or olympics um, you know we all thrive on that and uh, these children thrive on that and that's something that uh, has enormous value to establishing young productive well-balanced uh, energized and uh, courteous kids in our community uh, email here from Jerry at bkelly900chml.com. Uh, please ask the mayor about downtown redevelopment and how, what the time frame is for that. I assume, thank you, Jerry, for the email. Uh, I assume Jerry's talking about the uh, the negotiations that uh, you've been a big part of over the last number of years uh, mm -hmm. about uh, the arena, the convention center, and, and of course, uh, First Ontario uh, Performance Center, uh, i.e. Hamilton Place. Uh, what's, what's going on there right now? We know the group is there. You know the commitments have been made. Uh, I know that the renovations for for the arena, First Ontario Arena, have been delayed by at least a year now. Uh, mm -hmm. There's some concern right now whether or not this thing is going to get off the ground. What are your thoughts on that? Um, no, I think it absolutely will. And uh, you know, the, the the agreements are done, so it's a it's a locked in arrangement uh, with. Uh, but there's an added an, an added value partner that's come into the process here, which is the which is OVG, which is a major uh, arena developer uh, uh, investor that uh, has done uh, LAX in, uh, in uh, you know, um, Los Angeles, uh, the Philadelphia Arena. I mean, these are, these are uh, you know, well-grounded, uh, well-funded uh, arena experts that have been uh, pulled into the process. So there's, a, there's another agreement that's being created to, to, to allow them to be part of this consortium. Uh, but the consortium is solid. They're uh, they're excited about the opportunities. Uh, I think you'll see uh, some activity in 2023, uh, certainly on the convention center and uh, in Hamilton Place, which I, I think is probably the area that gets done first. And then the arena re revamp going to take a little longer, but it's going to probably start in 2023, and uh, and then take a take a year or so. But then. We anticipate having, you know, a $200 million investment rather than a $100 million investment. So that's going to make for an arena that's uh, going, to, going to do us for the next, uh, next 80, 80 or 90 years and, and give us the ability to promote more and better uh, concerts and, and, and compete more actively with uh, some of the larger venues that are getting a lot of these uh, going to their facilities. We want them to also happen in Hamilton. And so uh, I think we, uh, 
the upgrade is going to be fantastic for all of those facilities and and then the uh, the ancillary developments that we've agreed to on on some of the areas on york boulevard i think uh, all of those can start happening sooner rather than later and you know it'll take some time for the applications to come through and the uh the plant planning uh, the design uh, uh, process uh, but i i would anticipate that uh, all of that will start happening in 2023 uh, speaking of construction downtown, uh, let's t- talk a little bit about uh, LRT. Uh, it's uh, been batted back and forth for the longest time. It was canceled at one point. You got it back. Uh, you finally got commitments from the federal government and, of course, the provincial government for this. Uh, it's uh, it, it, I consider it a non-issue, and that's why I don't think anybody's talking about it a whole lot during this uh, municipal campaign. I think there's a pretty much a, a resignation by the people that were opposed to it that this is going to happen one way or another. Uh, or is it? Uh, I mean, you know, when all these plans were made, uh, there was not much in the way of a pandemic going on at that time. Uh, everybody's swimming in red ink right now, federal, municipal, and uh, provincial governments right now. Are you concerned about the time frame? Because the sooner you get a shovel in the ground, the sooner you can get started on the project. Uh, but, you know, it, it's been delayed, delayed, delayed for the last little while. And there's some concern about uh, similar projects in the GTA as well. What's your concern about Hamilton's project? Uh, I, I'm not concerned. I, uh, you know, I get regular updates on the work that is actually happening, which is uh, the underground service work. Uh, you know, identification that's uh, that's occurring. There are still more properties to acquire. They've uh, they've gone down the process of some of the acquired properties uh, have seen demolition, especially on the uh, eastern end of. Uh, of uh, of King Street, so uh, the work continues. Uh, this is uh, they they've been uh, you know into the uh, design and uh, 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 finalization and uh, preparing for the procurement process, and all, all of that will take time. And we, that was all known. We could have helped, had all of this uh, in play and in process had these projects not been delayed uh, on a number of occasions. Once uh, as a result of a council decision, and and then secondarily by the, uh, the by the provincial government. Um, you know, I would say the uh, I am grateful to the provincial government. They, uh, you know, they made a they made a decision to, uh, to 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 cancel the project at at a given point in time, but came around to you know finding a way of uh, making it uh, more acceptable to the province, but uh, also pulling in the federal government to provide some resources. I think there's a there's an interest and a demand for creating you know work projects in our in our communities uh, right across the country infrastructure uh, is a great way to do that and this is certainly the most significant infrastructure project uh, that the city will see in you know quite some time or has ever seen quite frankly Uh, over and above all of that uh, there's the lrt project but there's also the 500 million dollar traditional bus uh, investment that was also put together between the federal provincial municipal governments uh, that is funded, and that uh, will require a new uh, bus terminal, which is uh, in the works, and will allow for you know expansion of the traditional bus transit system, which is uh, also in the planning stages, and uh, you know ultimately with a new um, uh, transit terminal, will allow for the electrification of the current buses that we we have. So we have no no e- even if we wanted electric vehicles, we have no place to charge them you know, overnight for them to get ready for day for day to day service. And so the new transit terminal will have all of that capability and we can get on with the improved electric electrification of uh, the traditional bus system away from gas and diesel and onto uh, electric vehicles. So all of that's going to take time, but those investments are firm. They're they're committed to 
I have uh, I have no doubt that uh, the, the, there is not going to be uh, any pullback from the federal and provincial governments, and I would certainly hope that the uh, the next council will embrace this and uh, and and encourage uh, both of those uh, governments to keep on going and make this happen for Hamilton. Notwithstanding the blips that are going on, because I've heard well, for instance, one person uh, who sent an email about this uh, just a little while ago, you know, looking at what's happening in Ottawa and, of course, in the east part of the GTA, uh, figuring this is just a complete waste of money, the devastation of downtown to save a couple of minutes going east to west. Uh, and she has actually moved her business out of the downtown after 36 years uh, because of the upheaval that she expects is going to occur. I've heard from a lot of businesses downtown that are very concerned about this. Uh, and it's it's all well and good to say, well, this is what it's going to be like when it's all said and done. Uh, but there's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that have to be They're going to be happening before that, and there's going to be collateral damage. And, and I, I don't know why we aren't talking about that because they, these are small businesses as well that are very concerned about their well-being. Yeah, no, and right and rightfully so, and uh, that's got to be part of the process. And you know, and, and you know, the 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 closest model for a successful uh, uh, integration of LRT and, and having concern for businesses is Kitchener Waterloo. Uh, you know, there was a lot of uh, the hoopla around it was going to ruin all the businesses and they were all going to be, uh, you know, devastated. And in fact, none of that happened. And, you know, and quite the op opposite happened when, you know, a lot more people were uh, gravitating towards living around the LRT. Uh, businesses thrive. Uh, but there is a process. Uh, you know, the construction process is going to take some time and it'll add some some difficulties for moving around in our communities. And all, all of that has to be considered to, as part of the uh, development construction process. And I'll put it down to, you know, we're, we're building the city of the future here. And, and uh, you know, will there be some short-term pain? Yes. Uh, but will, will there be a long-term significant gain? Absolutely. And, uh, you know, that longer term is something that we need to concern ourselves with. Because in the absence of that, uh, knowing full well that congestion continues to happen, even with electric vehicles, we're still going to have uh, everyone looking for their independent mobility uh, in, a, in a very effective way. And LRT allows for people to have that independent, uh, an independent ability without necessarily having to use a car. And then th it will lock in that 30-minute ride from Eastgate to McMaster University, whether there's congestions on the road or not. And so we, we need to be mindful that, you know, the kind of congestion that we're seeing in Toronto or on the highway is uh, we're not immune from that. And if we can get, a, get out ahead of that with a, uh, an enhanced public transportation system that provides additional options, uh, we'll have served our community well. I, I got two minutes left. I got to ask you what I consider to be one of the key issues coming up in this municipal election. You're not a candidate, so uh, feel free to speak freely on this. And that's area rating. Uh, for those who may not be familiar with, this is a basically a different tax system. You, you, you're taxed on the services that you get. And it was something that uh, the city council right after amalgamation in 2000 adopted on a temporary basis, but I should add, uh, to make it more fair and, and to ease some of the burden on, on some of the outlying areas. Uh, it's come up for debate. It's been referred over to the next council. Uh, you're not going to get a vote on it this time, Mr. Mayor, but what should council do here? Do they scrap it? Do they keep it going? What, what, what's, what's best for this community? So, so consistent with what was done with other areas of area rating, you know, over time since some amalgamation, you know, area rating was intended to protect suburban communities from services they did not get. Uh, over time, uh, you know, those communities are getting services, whether it's fire or policing or, or, 
additional rec centers, uh, you know, all of those things are happening in all parts of the community, suburban and otherwise. And so there was a time when that, that area rating was completely out of whack, where, where they were not paying for services they were getting that was, that was being paid for by the bulk of, uh, you know, Hamilton taxpayers. And so an, an arrangement was made to, uh, you know, to uh, uh, eliminate, eliminate that area rating, uh, phase it in over or phase it out over time, and the, the, the balance of the money for went some of the money went to you know municipalities in Hamilton or areas in Hamilton that uh, could use that for infrastructure rather than adding a, a you know additional tax load to the uh, suburban communities. Uh, I think the same kind of process can happen here where you can phase it in, uh, phase it out over time. Uh, but the reality is that uh, suburban communities are getting transit service and they're getting more and more of it every day. Uh, so at some point, uh, you know, there has to be an equalization of that uh, contribution to our overall transit system. And so I hope that the, uh, the Council of the Day will, uh, will, will find a path to, uh, to phase it out gently and, and but, but firmly. That, and that at some point in time, we're all on an equal footing when it comes to transit investments. So I'm, I'm, uh, I, I, I rue the day that they put in area rating, and I know it was part of, uh, part of the, uh, I guess, the balancing act of, uh, of making amalgamation happen, which for many people is still a, still an open wound. Uh, but the reality is that uh, that uh, services have equalized across the board uh, in, in all of our communities in a very significant way. And if, if uh, area rating is eliminated, but there will be even more resources available to expand those services in all of the uh, suburban communities. And all of them want more additional bus service. So all of them want more additional capacity to get away from a taxi script program that's out there that uh, you know, gets them from the end of the bus service uh, through by taxi to whatever their destination is. So the, uh, the, the, the quicker we can uh, eliminate area rating, the, the, the quicker we can provide even more service over and above that $500 million expansion that I talked about a little while ago. Well, it's going to be an interesting debate, especially because uh, some of the contenders for uh, for your job, of course, have been vacillating on the uh, the subject too. Uh, it's going to be a very hot button issue, and we look forward to that discussion. Uh, this is our last town hall with uh, Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. Of course, as you say, the the term will be over uh, when the new council gets sworn in. Uh, we'll have lots of time to to look back and 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 talk about some of the uh, accomplishments and some of the things that have been done. But we do appreciate uh, you always making yourself available to us, Mr. Mayor, and to the people of Hamilton as well. Uh, thanks for this again today, and we'll talk again down the road. Bill, thank you so much. Uh, it's been an honor and privilege to, uh, to, to spend time with you uh, on, on such a regular basis and, uh, and to serve our city and community as mayor has been, uh, you know, just the, 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 the privilege of my life. And uh, I thank uh, you and everyone else out there for their uh, kind words and support, and I, I look forward to making future contributions in our community in some other capacity. Well, we'll see what that's going to be. There's another discussion to have, uh, but we're out of time. Hamilton Mayor Fred Eisenberger. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. What's it like in your workplace? Are you back to work? I know a lot of people were working remotely for the longest time, but uh, many companies now are trying to integrate people back in. Uh, Some never left, of course, uh, depending on uh, what your occupation was and the impact that the pandemic was having on you. Uh, but the the atmosphere in which you work can certainly have an impact on you and also in the productivity of uh, the company that you work for. 
so there's a survey that's done every year uh, by LifeWorks. Now, LifeWorks is a, a provider of digital and in-person uh, well-being solutions supported by Telehealth. We've had them on the program many times because I always find the, their data very, very insightful uh, when it comes to talking about things like productivity and people's state of mind. And uh, the latest survey says there is a significant gap uh, between the culture in the workplace uh, and and what they want to have as a, a culture that they feel as if they can be their best. Uh, joining us to talk about this is Paula Allen. Paula is a Senior Vice President of Research and Wellbeing at LifeWorks. Uh, Paula, great to have you on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Uh, the numbers here are, are, well, concerning, I guess, in many ways, that people are just uh, are feeling that they're in a negative workplace culture, uh, which is going to have an impact on, on not just their productivity, but I guess of their co-workers as well. Uh, what's going on here? And what's what, what's Because I, I know that you always do this on a scientific basis. Uh, so talk to us about the results and, and how you arrived at those numbers. Well, we pulled uh, 3,000 working Canadians and actually 15,000 individuals globally. And, and, and really, we're validating uh, something that is very important for us to keep top of mind, which is your environment makes a difference. So when, when we see a workplace that uh, allows people to be their best, then they are at their best. But when you have different cultural indicators, such as, you know, cliqueishness versus as opposed to inclusivity, when there's a lack of respect, that's draining for the individuals. They, they have to keep vigilant. They don't necessarily, you know, know what's going on. It feels threatening. And without question, that kind of environment, because of those reasons, drains your mental health and reduces your ability to be productive. Well, and I guess you have to look at this in the broader picture, too. I mean, uh, many, many people, of course, uh, have, have taken a hit with their mental health uh, wellness uh, because of the pandemic itself. Uh, and the work environment is, is only going to exacerbate when it already exists then. Without question. And that's part of the reason why we're really um, highlighting this very strongly. So we, we definitely saw a, a significant decline in the mental health of the working population at the beginning of the pandemic with all the change and uncertainty and risk. I mean, all these things the human mind doesn't like. And we haven't really recovered all that much since. It's gone up a bit, but certainly nowhere near where it was just in 2019. Uh, so it's important for us to really look at the factors that do make a difference. Uh, right now, we're, we're in a bit of a vulnerable place. You know, about half of us are feeling more sensitive to stress and responding so in our interactions. And that, that, that we need to just sort of not let that happen. So what you do in terms of your own behavior and your own self-care is part of it. But the environment that's created for you, in particular, the workplace environment, is another part of it. But there's a cause and effect here. And I know we've talked about this in past discussions. Uh, you know, if it's I, maybe toxic is too strong a word, but if it's an uncomfortable workplace, some of them are toxic. But if let's just use uncomfortable, we'll, we'll try to hit middle ground here. Uh, it, it's going to have an impact on productivity, isn't it? Without question, without question. I mean, we know that, you know, there's been prior research when, when people feel safe, when they feel psychologically safe, which means that they can be themselves, they don't feel that they're going to be ridiculed for ideas, you know, then, then you have the freedom in terms of your mind and the energy in your mind to actually be creative, to be collaborative, you know, to not second guess yourself. Like if you're, if you're feeling unsafe, if you're feeling that you're not respected, if you're feeling uh, that you're in a hostile environment, a lot of your mental energy is taken up just paying attention to that and trying to protect yourself, not being productive. 
when you were doing the survey here, uh, the numbers I saw here said there were nine indicators uh, that you used. Uh, in other words, to give some people perspective on this, talk to us about some of those. And, uh, you know, in other words, to get people's mindset into, okay, what about this aspect? What about this aspect? Yeah, uh, the, the nine uh, that we came to, um, one was the, um, the dimension of competitive versus collaborative. So where you were on that, uh, on that scale, flexible versus inflexible, hard driving versus relaxed, cliquish versus inclusive, stagnant versus innovative, motivating versus demotivating, respectful versus disrespectful, safe, psychologically safe versus unsafe, and, and um, supportive versus hostile. So we assessed where people saw their workplace on each of those dimensions, because sometimes you're stronger, you're in one area and, and one and not in another. And we found mm -hmm. extremely strong correlations in each of these areas with both mental health and work productivity in particular, uh, the safe and unsafe and the competitive and collaborative. Mm -hmm. Did you feel that people were, were comfortable to be candid about their remarks and, and truthful? I know sometimes these sorts of things can be intimidating and people give the answer they think they're supposed to give as opposed to the answer they may want to give. Well, that, that's a risk when uh, the person in front of you knows who you are, <laughs> can see you, knows your name. But this is this is a completely mm -hmm. anonymous survey. There's no possibility of any kind of reprisal against individuals. So there's no reason for them to be, uh, be concerned. And again, the size of the sample and the fact that we're seeing similar trends you know, in other, other, other countries says that, you know, this is the truth uh, based on what the working population is experiencing, your environment. And your mental health and your and your productivity are aligned. Now, it's important to know that you know the environment isn't the only factor that impacts people's men mental health. What we're highlighting is that it's a variable that can make things better or worse. Well, and I know you talk to managers and non-managers in many of these situations, and, and as the numbers indicate, managers are forty percent more likely than non-managers to indicate that the workplace culture can increase productivity. Of course, the the inverse of that is also true. You would think, with that knowledge, then Paula, that they would strive to ensure that that they're they're giving the best possible environment to their employees. Exactly, but you know, I think we 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 sort of assume sometimes that just because somebody's had uh, has a manager role that they know how to manage every aspect of the work situation. That's that's unfair. You know, you might have become a manager because of great technical skills or a lot of other things, but unless you're actually trained on what makes a difference, you you might not know. You know, just being a good person, just being a person who wants a, a strong team isn't enough. We have to give managers the opportunity to be successful. And that's why I think this is sort of good news because all of these things are trainable. You know, you can actually create a culture with certain behaviors, but you have to know how to do that. Are companies making that accommodation then, understanding that as people move up the ladder promotion-wise, et cetera, uh, that they receive the proper training for the position that they're going to be moving toward? Increasingly so. I, I think that it wasn't that, that, you know, people really didn't make that investment as strongly as they should have in the past, but we're realizing that there's a lot of consequence if you don't. 
So we have seen over the past two years a real strong increase in the demand for mental health in the workplace training. So helping managers understand, you know, what a mentally healthy workplace looks like and how to step in when somebody is not in a great place in a manner that's appropriate to your role. So not being a counselor, but, you know, how do, how do you sort of, you know, see that you, you that show that you that you care and show that you've seen something concerning and help that person take the next step. So the increase in training is definitely a good sign, but there's still a little ways to go. Well, and finding that balance, I guess, which has to be part of the training, uh, you know, there have to be standards, et cetera, for the, whatever the job is. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you can't put undue pressure on people or there, nobody's going to meet those standards. Exactly. And I, and I think at the end of the day, regardless of the nature of the job, how you deal with human beings really is, is, is pretty consistent. So I, I would like to see this sort of, you know, this, this um, mental health in the workplace training, you know, how to, how to create a really healthy and productive environment, be more standard across all roles and not have managers, you know, penalized or, or, or in any way sort of um, get any kind of retribution of unless that training has happened. There's a stat here that jumped out at me in the report that I wanted to get your comment on. 38% of respondents believe that there is a significant difference between the culture their workplace claims to have and the reality. Uh, the, the group, of course, had a mental health score of 58.7. So basically, in other words, what, you know, the management are saying, oh, yeah, we've done everything. We, we, this is a great environment. And a number, 38% is a big number. That's a significant number saying, no, it's not as good as you think it is. Exactly. Almost four in 10. And again, we, we want to bring awareness. At the end of the day, this is, this is a matter of authenticity. And I think it's important for organizations to really be honest in terms of where they are in this journey and, and not communicate something that's not true, because that actually can damage credibility more than being honest about something that might not be positive. So, you know, when you think about it, when you're in a situation and somebody is saying one thing and doing another thing, that is another strain. You don't know which way to look. You don't know what to believe. You're attending to little signs that really shouldn't be taking up your energy, but they are right now. Uh, it's another drain on people. So, you know, I encourage employers to sort of relieve that strain from employees and be authentic in terms of where they are, even if it isn't positive. You know, that not everybody is perfect. You know, we're all on a bit of a journey here. You know, not say that you have the most X environment if you can't back that up, uh, but work towards that. And I think that'll be respected uh, a fair bit more. I mean, for that 38%, as you say, almost four in 10 people that have that opinion of their workplace. Uh, I, I guess there's a couple of different things you could look at here, different perspectives on this. Uh, it, it might, in some cases, on management's part, be, be willful, uh, or it might they may be oblivious to that. I would imagine one of the best ways to address that anyway is, is there's got to be communication between managers and non-managers. Uh, not, not to suggest that everybody's going to make all of the decisions, but at least get feedback as to what things are going on and what's good and what's bad. Exactly. And, and, and I don't necessarily think it's willful. I think it's two things. I think one is exactly what you said. Um, sometimes, uh, you know, managers don't know, you know, they haven't asked the question, their environment and their experiences could be quite different than, than the average employee. So it's really important to have that kind of, you know, feedback loop and to, to measure how things are going. Anything that's important to your productivity and to the well-being of, of your people is important to measure, to assess. 
And, and I think the other thing is that sometimes people just, um, <laughs> and, you know, we're all guilty of this at one point in, in, our, in our lives, because we want it to be so, we think it is so. Uh, and that often isn't the case. So we want to have uh, the, the most positive culture. So, you know, we, we say that we're inclusive. We say that we're psychologically safe. We really, we really want that to be the case. Uh, but unless you have actually taken intentional actions to make sure that that is the case, then it, it might not be. You've been doing this for a while, at, at trying to measure what's going on in workplace uh, with well-being and mental health. Uh, is 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 it easier now because there seems to be more awareness of mental health? People seem to be more open to talking about it than they were even just a few years ago? In general, I think people are more willing to talk about mental health, but I really want to make sure that there is a clear understanding of two things. One is that we still do have stigma. So, you know, people are talking in the community about mental health issues and, you know, everybody is, 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 is sort of the expectation is that people would be open uh, in accepting others with mental health, health issues. But when we actually look at it, when we actually ask people their own experience, there's still a lot of fear and a lot of reticence, particularly on the impact on their career if others were to know that they had mental health challenges. So we still have a ways to go. It almost seems like we're just sort of taking the first step. Uh, the other thing is that I really want to make it clear that you know we are seeing more mental health issues in the population but we are not seeing that just because people are talking about it more. We're not seeing increased crisis uh, visits to hospitalization because of lack of stigma. Those things would have happened one way or another. We're not seeing the precipitous drop between uh, December of 2019 and 2020, which is a short period of time, uh, only because there is a less stigma, there has definitely been a change. So even as we're talking about stigma and we're moving in the right direction, I think it's important to remember those two, two facts. It's still a problem, and we are seeing many reasons contribute to uh, the decline in mental health and, and the call to action to do something about it. I think one of the past surveys you guys did, uh, we had a discussion about that, and, and I think two of the reasons that kept coming up about that was, as you say, uh, you're worried about the possibility of, of promotion. Uh, you know, if, if I admit that, yeah, that I've got some issues, uh, they may pass you over. Uh, the other end, of course, is you don't want to be perceived as a whiner. Uh, hopefully that wouldn't be the case, but it does happen, and, and I'm sure you've heard that anecdotal evidence as, as well. And, and that could cause some hesitancy for people to actually, you know, come out and, and actually talk and speak what's on their mind. Yeah. And, and you know, I, you know, sometimes those things do happen, you know, sometimes it's not just the fear, you know, there, sometimes, you know, there, the fear could be uh, self self-imposed, but the fear could be because you're dealing with a, uh, a real threat. And I, and I really think at the end of the day, those who are more educated about mental health issues, those who have knowledge about how the mind works, even at a, at a, a very, you know, cursory level, the, the likelihood of stigma is much less, you know, to say that you're whining, to say that you're weak, to say that, you know, if you have any kind of challenge that you'll always be, you know, compromised, all of those things are the result of myths. So I think when we have more information around mental health, starting in, in, at the, the, the primary school level, I, I think we'll be better off. And if we didn't start at the primary school level, like we certainly didn't when I was growing up, we'll start now. 
Start when people are adults in work, whatever their level, whether they're senior managers or not. The knowledge around mental health in, this, in the population is abysmally low, and that's creating a lot of problems. Are, are businesses attuned to that right now? In other words, is your client base growing? I mean, because you guys do some great research on this. And I, 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 we've talked with some companies that have worked with you uh, and seen the benefit of, of actually having this kind of information about their, their workforce and, and the, uh, the atmosphere of their workforce as well. You would, you would think that this has to be, would have to be, but should be anyway, part of a, a business plan for just about every business that wants to be successful. Well, this is, we're moving in a better direction than I have ever seen. Um, I think the pandemic was a big wake-up call when people sort of realized how vulnerable we all are and that, you know, this the whole idea of, of mental health wasn't just about the people who, you know, had quote-unquote diagnoses. It's an issue that impacts everybody. Everybody has... Um, you know, some uh, some risk. Everybody has uh, variable experiences with their their mental health, whether they're in a high risk uh, or crisis category or not. So the way that we've seen the change is that the change is really at the boardroom level right now and the senior leadership level. You know, CEOs are the ones who are reaching out and saying, "I want to make sure that we're doing the best thing for our people," and that's where it needs to be. You know, there needs to be that recognition that. You know, your most valuable resource truly is your people. We are very much a people-powered economy. Your business is not going to do well if your people are not in a great place. And people talk about technology and things of that sort. Well, everybody has access to the technology. As one example, you know, two organizations could implement the same technology, but how their people use it, you know, how they actually, you know, bring innovation to it. How the, the the technology interfaces with uh, with the way they deal with their their public and customer service, how they collaborate to solve problems, all of these things that are human things, innovation, collaboration, you know, uh, interpersonal uh, um, uh, service, all of that is impacted by your mental health. So you can spell your billions on your technology if you don't have that in your people, you're still not going to do well. So the, the business the business need is clear, uh, but I actually do think that there is a lot more empathy at the senior levels as a result of our pandemic experience. Well, hopefully it's going to uh, foster this kind of discussion among many other companies, too, as we try to get back on our feet economically. Paula, always a pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for the great work you guys do at LifeWorks, and thanks for joining us today. All right. Thank you for the conversation. Take care. Take care. Paula Allen, Senior VP of Research and Wellbeing at LifeWorks. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.